0: There were books um, that were really popular about 20 years ago. I don't know if you remember these books. They were called Magic Eyes, like Magic Eye, E-Y-E. That company still exists. I actually went on their web page. It looks like they haven't updated it um, since they were created um, years ago. But Magic Eyes were these books that were repetitive patterns, um, and they would be like a scene, and they had a 3D image embedded in them. Um, I I grew up on these, and I could not see them for the life of me. My trick, um, I never saw them. My trick um, for looking at them was to try to look at them cross-eyed and hope that something would happen. Uh, It never really worked. Instead, the strategy was to take the book, according to what they say, is to take the book and then focus on one point and slowly pull the picture back, and eventually you might see the 3D image embedded in this kind of patterned surface image. If you had been in my office this past week while I was reading this passage of Scripture, uh, you might have seen me trying that strategy, trying to start with just the Scripture close and then pulling it back to see if that helped at all understand what this passage of Scripture was saying. This passage of Scripture is actually the one, uh, the reason why we named this series what we named it. Because the first time I read it, my response was, wait. Awesome. Good. Good. This is the most confusing of them all. If you go look at any of the commentators, they will tell you, any of theologians, they'll say, don't touch Luke 16. Whatever you do, don't preach it. We're in this series on the confusing parables found in the Gospel of Luke, and this is unquestionably Jesus' most difficult, confusing parable, the parable of the dishonest manager. A lot of pastors never preach it. A lot of churches never talk about it. Theologians disagree with its meaning. Biblical scholars will tell you that different lines are talking about different things. I mean, even Matthew, Mark, and John were like, nah, dog, I'm not touching that one. They kept it out. It's only in Luke because they knew better. They're not going to include this one in their gospel. To the bumper sticker or the person that says, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Explain this one for me. This is Luke 16, verses 1 through 13. If you Listen for the word of God. Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do now? Now that my master is taking the position away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes." So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 50. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? And he replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, "Uh, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly, for the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is, is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you to their true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And all God's people said, wait, what? This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's, uh, we're going to have to pray over this one. Let's pray. Holy and living God, as smart as we may think we are, as intelligent and as insightful as we feel we are when we open your scripture, we know that it is only by your Holy Spirit that these words come alive. So stir now. Crack open this difficult passage, and may we see you in it, and may we dare to live it in the days and weeks ahead. In your son's name we pray, amen. So of course, Luke is the one that's going to write this parable. Uh, As we've mentioned, Luke is our tell-it-like-it-is gospel. He's a bit of our problem child. He has no problem uh, telling us what we don't want to hear, speaking honestly, kind of disrupting things. Luke is far more upfront and more candid about what it means to follow Christ. And he doesn't shy away from the hard stuff at all throughout the entire gospel. He's the one that most often mentions money. Luke is more ready to say that, probably more than the others, he's ready to admit that following Jesus is confusing. It's challenging. It's messy. The lines are blurry. So let me just recap what happened in this passage because there's a lot there. Basically, it's this, a manager works for a very rich landowner, and there are charges brought against the manager that the manager has squandered the landowner's property. So the manager knows that he is in a crisis and is about to be fired, so he has to act quickly. So he goes out to the debtors and the tenants, all those people that owe his owner and man, or own the landowner money, and he decides to reduce their debts. One guy, he even cuts the debt in half. All of this, Jesus says, is so that the manager can have a fallback plan, can have a plan B, a network of relationships that might welcome him in a few days when he's about to be unemployed because, to be sure, he's about to be fired. Up to this point, that story makes sense. If you're about to be fired, start looking for plan B. But then all of a sudden, verse 8 happens, and it throws this whole parable into a tailspin. It says, and his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Then there's this fascinating kind of ambiguous phrase for the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. Wait, what? Did Jesus just applaud dishonesty? Did Jesus just commend cooking the books in order to kind of cover your tail? It's such a confusing parable, I'm not even sure that the gospel writer Luke actually knew what it meant, because following the parable, there's a string of sayings from Jesus um, that really just are kind of very loosely related to the topic. Um, It's as if Luke, when he was pulling together this whole gospel, had a few extra note cards of Jesus quotes left over, and he just tried to, "Eh, I guess we'll put them right there, because they don't really make sense. They don't really fit with the rest of the parable. Or maybe Luke was actually intentional about this in saying, this parable has so many different interpretations, let me just give you a few. The interpretations of this parable are all over this place, and many of them, are, or actually some of them, are convincing. Some consider this to be a biblical kind of Robin Hood-like story, um, the story where this manager comes in and kind of throws over, topples this hierarchical economic system, Others think it's about shrewdness and an act of loyalty in order to prepare for the kingdom of heaven. Some think it's actually a non-example of how not to spend your money or how not to go chasing after money. Some people think it reinforces the parable just before this, which is the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son, uh, just as the father welcomed the son in with mercy, so too does the landowner welcome back in the manager. One thing is for certain, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, gets you nowhere with this one. This parable demands that you think. It begs you to sit with it longer than a day, longer than an hour, longer than a week. It demands that you wrestle with it for meaning, turning it in different ways, holding it up to your face and just pulling it back if that's what requires. That's why I love the United Methodist tradition. That's why I love being a part of this church is because in, the, in our tradition, uh, reason and intellect are always on the table. We're always called to bring those to our faith. John Wesley believed that not only are we called to read scripture, but we're called to study it. We're called to put, it, put scripture in conversation with your experience, with the traditions, which, what you've seen in the world. Put it in conversation with other parts of the text and see how they compare and they contrast. Your faith will be far richer if you study scripture. If you're a parent, you probably know this. Um, even if you're not a parent, you've probably experienced this because at one point you were a child, but at some point, somebody probably told you, don't judge a book by its cover. It can lead you astray. In the world of scripture, my recommendation is that don't judge a story by its subheading. We've talked about this before. Those those subheadings that are in the passage of Scripture that say the parable of the dishonest manager, those are not Scripture. Those were not originally there. It was a guy 1,800 years later in Nashville, Tennessee that probably just wrote that in as a book publisher. They're not a part of the text. Because if this story had a cover, I pictured um, this dishonest manager being a goblin from uh, Gringotts Bank. If you know the story of Harry Potter, they're kind of these sinister, evil, manipulative, stingy people who will do whatever it takes to keep their money and to cover their tracks in doing so. But if you look a little deeper in this text, if you play with it and if you dive into it, you'll see that maybe this dishonest manager isn't quite who we think he is. Take the first line, for example. The story starts, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. The word charge in there in the Greek is the word diabalo. It more accurately translates to slander. It's not charge. There were no formal charges brought against him. There was no trial. There was no guilt. It was rumor. It was slander unfounded, uncredited, speaking poorly against. And the word squander sounds like he's maliciously wasteful and that he's negligent. Maybe that he's hiding something. But the Greek word is actually translates to disperse or scatter like seed. So there was this man who was being slandered and rumors were against him because he would go out and he would spread, scatter, disperse his, manager, his landowner's property. Read that way, I'm not so certain I've been giving this guy a fair shake. The Gringotts Bank guy is not really the fair book cover. This man doesn't sound so bad. He sounds like he's a bit of a rebel. He sounds like he might be a little bit of a loose cannon. He might be uh, too generous in what he gives, but it doesn't sound like he's manipulative. And it makes me wonder, is he dishonest because of something he did or because that's what he was labeled by others? One of the definitions for the Greek word dishonest, it's a word, uh, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Um, The Greek word adikia, the dishonest, actually means to violate the law. Again, another strong language there, and that might be a bit of a stretch, but he's definitely a rule breaker. The manager bends the rules of society, and maybe his master goes against the grain. He doesn't follow the norms of the debtor society, which says, pay us your debts. As we expect payment from our debtors. Instead, this manager chooses relationships over rules. He forgives debts. He extends grace. So it's the story of a man slandered because he breaks the rules of society. A man accused of squandering or generously giving away his master's gifts. A man who onlookers say he's only treating them this way in order to save his own skin and win over followers. A man who, when given the option, rarely chooses the rule book but instead chooses the way of relationships and the way of grace. What? One of the books I've been reading this past year is a book called The Orthodox Heretic. Um, don't judge. Uh, It's a book by a guy named Peter Rollins, and he writes these modern-day parables. They are not Scripture, but they are controversial because he likes to take Scripture and twist it just a little bit or kind of get under your skin. He's not trying to make it a substitute for Scripture, but he is trying to get you to think differently. And Rollins writes this uh, parable that I read earlier this week. There's a story of a local caretaker of a church. And late one night, a man came knocking at his door to be let in. So the caretaker comes and answers the door. The guy comes in, and they begin to talk. And the man who is the visitor comes in and begins to tell him his story. He had been a journalist who had slandered not just the government. He wasn't just a political dissenter. He also slandered the church. The guest was clearly a troublemaker, but he seemed like a nice guy on the surface. Well, the next morning... The priests and the townspeople find out that the caretaker's holding this guy. He's staying there. So all of the people come rushing to this guy's house, and they demand that the caretaker turn over the man who is the visitor. Give him to us. He's a threat to our community. He's a threat to our faith. He's caused so much damage. We have to have him and turn him into the authorities. But the caretaker refused. He says, I must protect this man. That's what I'm called to do. The priest comes back the next day and comes back with scripture, and he's ready to go and ready to say, see here, he needs to be handed over. He has slandered the church. He has slandered our community. He's speaking against all of us. Hand him over. And the caretaker says, nope, not going to do it. So the priest prays to God and says, God, if anyone can convince the caretaker to hand over this man, it'll be you. So God and the priests go to the caretaker, and God says, hey, caretaker, clearly this man has done some harm. In order to protect this town, you need to hand him over to the priest. But the caretaker responds, says, God, if you want me to remain faithful to you, I must protect this man. You have already demanded that I protect this man, the persecuted. He's persecuted all of us, but you've already demanded that I keep him and I protect him because we are called to protect the persecuted. Your words of love have been spelled out by the lines on his face and your mercy in his flesh. So God, I must defy you in order to remain faithful to you. God turned back to the priest and others saying, if I can't convince him, you probably can't either. So leave this caretaker in peace. Then God smiled and withdrew, knowing that his will had been Sometimes following Jesus means breaking the rules. What if that's how we lived our lives? What if we had the courage to forgive and to show mercy to anyone and everyone, just like the manager does, just like the caretaker did? What if we were as bold as the manager and the caretaker, not fearing the consequence of what might come if we love too much or if we forgive too much or if we show too much mercy? It's a risk that sometimes will make the townspeople in the church pretty angry then we have to show mercy and forgiveness all over again to them too. It means taking a chance and rolling a dice and taking a leap of faith. But maybe following Jesus means breaking the rules, forgiving our debtors just as God forgave us. These parables are not easy. This one's not easy. It's not always clear how we're supposed to do it. It's not simple to just live a life of forgiveness, but we do it anyways. Because a long time ago, there was a dishonest, shrewd, rule-breaking manager that came to this earth, and it was his forgiveness that us debtors always dreamt of. Amen.
1: You call me out upon the waters, the great unknown. My faith will stand and i will call upon your name and keep my eyes above the waves when oceans rise my soul will rest in your embrace for i am Why don't you stand with us and we'll sing this together? Your grace abounds in deepest waters, your sovereign. surrounds me you've never failed and you won't start stronger in the presence of my savior and i will call upon your name And keep my eyes above the waves when the oceans rise my soul will rest in your name So will rest in your embrace, for I am yours, and you are mine,
0: oh. don't forget, uh, we'd love for the Clark family and for Allie to go uh, say hello, be sure to greet them and welcome them to this new community, go from this place, uh, living a life of forgiveness, Uh, A world that says, pay us our debts as our debtors owe us. Go and forgive our debts, just as your Father in heaven has forgiven you. Go from this place in the confidence and the peace of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.